Hello and welcome. This is Deanna Latimer Hearn and you're listening to The Culture We Speak podcast, a show promoting awareness and understanding of cultural and linguistic diversity. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Miss Yolanda Ludke of Higher Expectations of Racine County, Wisconsin. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, Onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. Welcome. I'm here with Ms. Yolanda Ludke, who is a speech-language pathologist who currently serves as the Collaborative Partnerships Director for Higher Expectations for Racing County. So we recently connected through a mutual friend and colleague. And after our initial meeting, I invited her to be a guest on the podcast um, in order to shed light on serving historically marginalized communities. So welcome, Ms. Yolanda, to The Culture Whiskey. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Yes, I'm excited to get started. So I appreciate you for taking the time out to come. So I know you started out as an early intervention SLP, just based on our previous conversation. And I am fascinated by people who have sort of, quote unquote, escaped the speech pathology field to do some things outside of what we sort of consider to be a typical or traditional speech pathology role. So can you tell me what prompted your move from early intervention to your current profession? Yeah, so actually I was prompted by my boss because she had done some collaborating with higher expectations as the director of early learning. And so she was familiar with the kind of work that they do and knew that they were creating a position to fill their need to have a dedicated person that is responsible for their early childhood outcome. And I had worked with her for a number of years. First, she was a colleague, and then eventually she became my principal, and then she was the director of the program that I was working for. And over the years, I had just become really active in racial equity work and advocacy for the early learning program and throughout our district. And she recognized that my skill set and the passions that I have were a really good match for the job description. And she called me last year, it was right around this time, actually, and told me that she had something that she wanted to talk to me about. And here I am. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that sounds like it kind of was meant to be, so to speak, you prepared prior to without maybe knowing that this is the direction that your career would take. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love early intervention. And I started out in a speech and language classroom that was combined with a four-year-old kindergarten classroom. So I had been in classrooms before. I've worked with early childhood. I've done home visits with an early intervention program. And then, you know, at the end of my role as a speech path, I was a traditional itinerant therapist in a school. So I really do love working with the whole family. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that has been really great about this shift is just being able to work on policy and kind of shifting systems on a broader scale. Yeah, and I think that's so important. And you mentioned working with the whole family. So typically in our educational setting, we don't get the opportunity to work as closely with the family members. So do you feel that that is a piece that's maybe missing from what we do in a school setting? Or how do you think we could go about shifting how we do that work? That's a really great question. And I think one of the bright spots of having to do the shift that we did during the pandemic was, you know, the connection with caregivers and the coaching that was able to happen. I wasn't doing that prior. You know, you send a notes home, you have parent-teacher conferences, you have your annual IEP. And I know some speech paths send home homework or, you know, just have more 
either carve out more time in their schedule to do more working with families. But something that I wanted to do had I continued in the school was to shift my practice and try to incorporate more parent coaching and facilitating, which is difficult when it's not a requirement, right? So it's something that you have to build into a child's goals or you have to have parent That makes sense what you're saying about incorporating um, family and kind of doing a more holistic approach to what it is that for the services that we provide would be wonderful, but I don't know that it's always feasible, like you mentioned, which makes it a challenge. I think there can be a disconnect and sometimes that carryover is helpful. I know when we went into kind of COVID mode and everything shifted to online, I was a little apprehensive about that aspect of it because I hadn't had to do it in the past. And so going into a situation where the parent is either immediately present in the therapy session or kind of adjacent and popping in and out really changed my perspective about incorporating them into the therapy process beyond that initial early intervention program. I think in early intervention, it's pretty common to have the parents there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of pressure, right? And this would be said for teachers as well. How often are you in a situation where you're not often one-on-one with your student? And I know for speech pathologists, it's different, but all of a sudden you're in this very intimate space, even though there's a screen and it's just the three Mm -hmm. of you, or maybe the four of you. And it's very different. I was nervous going into it. I didn't know how it was going to go. And I'd be lying if I said there weren't, you know, sessions that were a struggle or a complete fail, but overall, once I got the hang of it and the families got the hang of it and the kiddos got the hang of it, it was really great. That said, Mm -hmm. there's a whole swath of the population who it just did not work for. And that might've been for many reasons, but I know that there is a huge disconnect in the availability of, you know, Wi-Fi or technology or technology understanding and things like that. So, so definitely there were families that we were not able to connect with on the level that they needed. And that's truly unfortunate. Yes. I think you speak of the digital divide and a lot of the challenges that people face once we went online. I think it was a great idea in theory to do this Mm -hmm. in this manner and to pass out these devices, et cetera. But if the systems aren't there, if the supports aren't there to provide opportunities for students to actually engage in this manner, to be online consistently, et cetera, for any number of reasons or challenges that might be faced in different homes, then we're really promoting an inequitable outcome at the end of the day. I mean, we're still just having the same issue we had with disparate funding in schools. So Yes, absolutely. I had a, I had a family who mom was working at a fast food restaurant and her boss was very understanding and allowed staff to bring in their, their kiddos if, if they needed to. And so he would jump on, you know, in, cause the, the restaurant was closed but the drive through was still open. So he would jump on and he'd just be sitting there. And, you know, every once in a while, he would like get his mom's attention if he needed help toggling something on the computer. But I'm like, the lengths that families were going through to try to stay engaged, yeah. it certainly was not on. I just always was very clear to me that attendance issues or completion things, it was not for lack of parents and families trying their very best. And I think that's the assumption that a lot of people do make it. It's the family is not invested. But I think Mm -hmm. that particularly when you're in a relatively small space and you have maybe two or three children or more children, even it's very hard to then separate the space and allow everyone to be online at the same time and provide that same support that they would have gotten in a classroom setting, maybe, especially all of a sudden it's brand new and we're doing it this way. I think it's a hard shift. So I, I like that you bring up the fact that, you know, not all families have the same resources going in 
and that that made it challenging. I think here in our household, we were very privileged in that we could create space and we could, you know, set up our children to do this work. My husband does system administration. I do education. So, you know, they were kind of, it, it went seamlessly into this online learning process, but I recognize that not everyone has all of that in, to fall into place perfectly for them. Right. So I do appreciate what you had to say about that. So I want to know a little bit more about your move from one to the other. So how has that been rewarding for you having moved from early intervention into your current position? Oh, it's been so amazingly rewarding. I, (laughs) yes, you know, the schedule flexibility is second to none. And Mm -hmm. I know that it's not only shifting into a different line of work, but I know that my my boss and the team that she has curated has definitely allowed our organization to have very progressive policies about, you know, hybrid working, work from home, time off and things like that. So, so all of that is very rewarding and that makes a huge difference in job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I went from education to the nonprofit sector and I got a raise, you know, like oh, wow. yeah. a substantial one. And that's not, I think, you know, we don't like to talk about money, but being an educator is hard and, you know, there, there are definitely benefits, but there are some drawbacks, you know, and, and one thing mm-hmm. that was really nice for me is, is getting a nice raise and having a more flexible schedule. Yeah. I also really just enjoy so much working so closely with a team of people who are so inspiring and that I'm constantly learning from. My boss is six years younger than me and it's amazing. It's amazing. It's not that much of an age gap, but it's enough to just see a difference in the way things can be. There's just like, it's almost like the sky is the limit of what we're able to, what we're able to dream up and what we're able to create in terms of what kind of environment we want to create and what kind of work we want to put into the world. You know, I'm really passionate about racial equity and and doing this work and having these conversations. And it's really great to be working with people who are all coming to work to do the same thing. You know, I, I definitely had my my core group of people when I was working in education who felt as strongly as I did and who were as interested as I am, but it's different when you're going to work and that's the work you're doing. Yeah, I think that's great. And you mentioned before that you're engaged in setting up policies and shifting how things sort of work. So having a group of people who have that like-minded sort of process of getting that work done, I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think at the schools, that doesn't always happen, like you mentioned. So, right. Yeah. Um, but I think we're also inundated with so much work. And then also, um, like you said, the taxing situation in terms of the benefits of the job or the challenges that we're facing, you know, in terms of pay, flexibility, et cetera, those things aren't there. And it becomes such a burden that it's very hard to then do the extras. And that's where I kind of moved out of that setting. I was kind of frustrated with that because it's like I'm trying to work sort of against some of the problems that we see but I have all this other stuff that I have to love with me as I'm doing that. So can you talk a little bit about the Career to Cradle vision? Yeah, so Strive Together is a cradle to career network that unites organizations that are working toward equitable outcomes for children. So our partnership, Higher Expectations, is reversed only in its origin and that we're starting with the end, which is employment in mind. So if it's career to cradle, cradle to career, really it's just looking at the entire spectrum of a child's life into employment and working toward equitable education and employment outcomes. And so what types of initiatives have you been involved in so far in that effort? 
So I am currently the lead on our early childhood outcome. And so we are looking at, you know, what does kindergarten readiness mean? What does it mean for educators? What does it mean for families? What does it look like for a kiddo who comes into kindergarten who has had 4K and who hasn't? And Mm -hmm. right now I'm working on a systems indicator to look at a child's prenatal up to age five, looking at, you know, what, what happens in between those times, those years, because it's one thing to have a checklist of here are some things that are helpful for a child to know going into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. But what I think is really meaningful is what opportunities did they have before they reach school, right? So, you know, how many doctors were in the area that, how Mm -hmm. many doctors were available in the community that they were living in? How many jobs per household did caregivers have? Those kinds Mm -hmm. of questions I think are really important to look at. And then after all of those questions are answered, you can kind of start to look at, okay, did a child go to 4K? And if they went to a 4K, how well did they learn letters? How well did they learn numbers? How well did they learn those those pre-literacy skills and those those pre-academic skills before they go into kindergarten? But if you're just looking at those skills at the end of a 4K year, you're kind of just looking at, well, how how well did that program do? And you're not really necessarily looking at the systems that are really exactly. influencing those mm-hmm. outcomes prior to their first day of school. Yeah. And I think when we look at sort of where a child is when they arrive without considering all of those systems, then we erase all of the inequities that have already been built into what we're experiencing here in, in this country. So there's so 100%, many barriers. In place. 100%. Yeah. And we just erase all of that. And then we want to, then for me personally, like this, the frustration becomes like I'm strapping then this idea of a black white achievement gap on the child without yes. having considered all of the things that the systems have done to set up this child for failure. Um, yeah. You know, we're not born with it. As Lisa Delpit has said, we're not born with a, an achievement gap. You know, there is no disparity in the beginning. So it's very interesting that our system is structured in such a way that we then assign it to the child once they arrive at the school and not absolutely consider any of the other things that they've gone through. So that's awesome. Okay. So now I want to come hang out with you and do. Yes, (laughs) please do. I, you know, it's, it's really a mind shift when you start to think about things in that way, instead of, you know, what's missing or, you know, what does a child need to do to get to X goal? You know, it's like, what have they gone through to get to this point? And which of those experiences were positive and which of those experiences were negative? And how is that playing out in a child's development? And then where yeah. are we placing the blame? Yes. Just like you said, it shouldn't be on the puts, shouldn't be on the child. Yeah. And then where do we put the supports in place? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we sort of answer that in a way that addresses the issue itself and not what we perceive to be a deficit in the person? Right. So yeah, I think that's huge. And also in the family, because it extends beyond the child, even we know we will assign it to the family, not caring about education or even entire race groups or socioeconomic yes. groups. And I'm like, we make these sweeping generalizations that do not apply at all. Yeah. We're not asking why enough times, you know, you come up with an answer and you have to ask why again, and you keep doing that, right? What is the the magic numbers five (laughs) or something? (laughs) No, but I think that's so necessary. If you don't look at why, then then we're not really identifying the actual issue and the underlying issue. So amazing. 
So are there any specific challenges that you feel your organization faces specifically in your area that maybe are different from other areas? Or do you see similar challenges sort of throughout the U.S.? You know, I see similar challenges. I think, you know, each community is unique and it's just its makeup and what their history is and what the relationships are amongst the people in the community. Those things make things different from one community to the next. But, you know, racism still definitely exists here just like it does everywhere. And, you know, we are a neighbor to Milwaukee, which is one of the most segregated cities in the United States, right? So these challenges aren't unique. It's just more about, you know, recognizing that it's not, you know, we're not post-racism. Sometimes I think groups of people think that we are past racism and we're not. And it's just making sure that we all recognize like we're still here. We're still in this spot. Yes, there has been progress, but we have a lot to do. Yeah, there's a lot to be undone, I think, with just like we mentioned before already, the structures in place, et cetera. And it starts with that recognition of where we all experience relative sort of ease in some aspect of this process, right? And I know that some much less than others, but I think that it's important to first recognize that. Where do I have sort of this privilege in in this situation? And then how do I address where others do not? And how do I support them in that? And so, you know, as I mentioned with the digital divide, that didn't really hit my home in the same way because my family was positioned Uh to sort of seamlessly transition into that. But I have to then recognize that not every family was in that position. And I think that's a big problem in our field. Um, Yeah. You have to look at like, what is your sphere of influence? And yeah, where, Mm -hmm. where have you been given a privilege that you would be able to help somebody else out in an area that you didn't necessarily need help in, but you recognize that somebody else does, or where do you need to advocate for somebody where you didn't need that advocacy or somebody else had done that work for you, but. Mm -hmm. But it has to go back to that why that you mentioned before. If I don't ask why there's Mm -hmm. a difference or disparity or this perceived deficit, if I don't ask why that's there, then it ends up just reinforcing the system and and allowing these things to continue and allowing stereotypes and racist perceptions to persist. So Mm -hmm. I think that's excellent that you all address that. So I wanted to know, did you, I know that part of your bio mentioned that you were in rural areas. Did you do services in rural areas as well or? I didn't. I did. I grew up in a rural area, you know, spending time between spending time with my mom in Milwaukee and being raised by her parents in a really small rural community. So that's kind of where I'm, you know, splitting time. Other than that, I have done all of my work in, in cities. Okay. I was just kind of curious because I have no experience in rural areas. I think I'm very, very small. I won't say no, but very little. And so I was kind of wondering, do you perceive any specific differences, just having grown up with that dynamic, do you perceive differences that maybe educators or SLPs should be aware of in terms of serving communities that are maybe not built the same way? Definitely. I think there's no marginalization Olympics, right? So like hard is hard. And Mm -hmm. um, if you're marginalized, you're marginalized. Um, However, we do know that some communities are impacted more than others. And I think what's been really interesting because I did go to school in a smaller town, you know, I still have friends that are kind of servicing in more rural population populated areas. And, and I hear what some of those issues are. And I think mainly it's those, it's, it's the marginalized folks who end up really at a loss because you are so much less likely to have representative service providers in any of the or any of the systems that you encounter, right? So there are just some things that is comforting 
to know that you have somebody who recognizes your background. And I just see that as that's hard because that's not, that doesn't tend to be where diverse populations go to provide services or to live or to relocate, you know, every once in a while. Yes. But it's not the norm. I certainly was the only black student who graduated in my graduating class. There were a few black students who attended school with me off and on, but it was usually a foster care placement or a short-term living situation. You know, I was really Mm -hmm. the only one that was there as a permanent resident. Okay. And that had to be very challenging, I would imagine. So, Yeah. You know, I think it it was, and I still think I'm processing it because I think Mm -hmm. what I did a lot was block out differences and ignore differences to just like, survive because there was nothing I could do about it right so I had to survive Mm -hmm. and so I just kind of inserted myself as I am one of this group of people because Mm -hmm. I'm here and I'm one of you and so I think that that was something that a positive experience in that I was not second guessing like why is somebody saying x y or z unless it was very blatant because I wouldn't let my mind go there But that also gave me like a false sense of confidence, but I think it ended up being something that was really useful for me later, because then I was later in positions where I did need to call on that courage or that confidence or that bravery. And it was like an exercise muscle that I had built up over the years, especially being a child and just being the only person who looked like me. I can't imagine. I did not have that experience growing up. Um, Definitely had a very interesting as a in terms of race for my undergraduate studies, you know, at Northwestern, that that was probably where it kind of hit me the most. Race and socioeconomic status was like, this is different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so yeah. So one of my questions that I'd I'd like to ask of all of the guests that come on is when did you realize that your culture or language was different from the mainstream? So I guess that was pretty early for you. It was, I don't remember ever not knowing Mm -hmm. But I'm different, right? Because I was raised by my mom's side and my mom is white. So her side of the family is white. I didn't have interactions with my dad's side of the family. So my recognition of being different was like, I look different than everybody around me, but I didn't recognize what that difference meant until I was around the black side of my cousin's family. Okay. Because my only cousin is also a multiracial child Mm -hmm. of an interracial couple you know, her, she had, you know, interactions with her white side of the family, which was my side. And then her black side of the family, which was her mom's side. And I remember spending some time with her when I was young and with her family. And she was, she's four years younger than me. So this, you know, wouldn't have been something that she was picking up on, at least not at that time. And I was looking around and listening to people talk and looking at what people were eating. And (laughs) I was like, talk like you don't sound like you. I don't eat like you. I look like you. You look like, you know, but that was, that's, that was uncomfortable for me. And I think I still have to come to terms with that discomfort that I feel mm-hmm. when I'm around my own people. Yeah. I think being raised in the, in the manner that you said would make that challenging, especially since you learned how to fit in, mm-hmm. in order to survive. And then, yeah, having different yeah. customs and things like that would be challenging. How did you learn to kind of celebrate or embrace the difference, you know, later in your life? I would say it's definitely an ongoing process, but I don't know. I've always been the type of person, like I said before, I was probably overly confident. And so I think that I have always kind of liked to be an advocate for the underdog. Okay. And that just like 
that would show up in other areas of my life when there were like celebrity trials on TV or, you know, like I just, for whatever reason was rooting for the underdogs. And now I just feel like it just feels right. Like it's, it's, it's a value that I hold. And so I just feel that I feel really strongly about it, which is tricky because I recognize that there are people who feel the exact same way, completely opposite of me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's where I have to try to remember people generally are doing what they think is right, what they think they know is right. That's tricky to come to terms with. It's just, it's ongoing. I would just have to say it's ongoing. I think it's ongoing in this society anyway. I can think that that's just part of developing and experiencing and sort of growing in a space that maybe wasn't initially meant for you and has systems in place still that suggest every day or remind you every day that it's not. But I think one big takeaway from that is just that as Black people, we're not monolithic. Like there are so many different experiences that we have in there in our group. And there are so many different diverse expressions and, and ways of being that people often dismiss, especially if they're not adjacent to or interacting with our culture. And I think that that's very hard because then we get painted with this broad brush that suggests that all Black people are one way or Mm -hmm. all Black people see issues the same way or have the same upbringing or same experiences. And we're actually extremely diverse. Right. And so I I hate that that gets missed. So I think, you know, your experience and your journey is valid because it's yours. You know, it is what it is. And I don't think that you need anyone else to validate that. But I think that there are times where people will invalidate that because it didn't look the same as maybe what their perception of Blackness is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's like, you know, one of those you know, I've often have been told, I shouldn't say often, but more than once have been told I'm blacker than you based on, you know, yeah, any number whatever, of things, <laughs> whatever piece of culture that they like or enjoy, you know, same. I mean, I think that's just part of, part of that, that journey. It's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to prove that you're attached to the, to a certain aspect of the culture or something in order to be a piece of it. And I don't mm-hmm. think that, you know, I think we have to move away from that because it gives off and reinforces some very negative notions about us, et cetera. Right. So, so yeah, I appreciate you just being open enough to share, you know, your experience, your upbringing, et cetera, and how different it may have been from some, how similar maybe to others. Yeah. So of course. thank you for that. One other question I did want to ask was, has your new role shifted your perspective at all regarding opportunities for SLPs to engage in advocacy or regarding the training that SLPs receive? You know, I don't necessarily think my role has impacted that. Not yet. Anyway, I think, you know, the biggest impact that I noticed while I was still practicing was social media. You know, Mm -hmm. there's such a huge impact that the way many groups can advocate and can get together. And I think that that's just something that is a great space for recognizing what people are going through in different programs and, and what you know, what's lacking in different programs and the experience mm-hmm. that people are having in real time. For me, shifting out of sort of the SLP space allowed me to sort of look at it in different ways, but I, I don't know that I saw it differently per se because of being outside of it, just more or less seeing all of the areas for growth, like allowing, like separating from it for me was allowed me to look at it, I guess, in a different manner, but mm-hmm. it's not something I wasn't aware of while I was practicing. Right. Um, personally. Yeah. Do you have any advice or final thoughts for our audience members who might be interested in advocating for culturally and linguistically diverse populations? I would just say find folks who are doing the meaningful and interesting work that that you also are 
passionate about and go from there. Excellent. Well, I thank you once again for being a guest on the show and your willingness to do this. And I'm very thankful that we have connected. Thank you as well. This is, this is a really great opportunity. You have just listened to The Culture We Speak with your host, Diana latimer Hearn. Special thanks to our guest, Miss Yolanda Ludke, and to Taja Sparkman for the original lyrics to our theme music. Catch the next episode where I discuss microaggressions with Dr. Karen Davis, Associate Professor at Middle Tennessee State University. Be sure to visit theculturewespeak.com and subscribe to keep up with our latest work.